You're listening to the Blue Angel Phantoms podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Notoff. I started the Blue Angel Phantoms YouTube channel and website over three years ago, where I've been interviewing former Blue Angel pilots and crew. Now, new in 2020, I've decided to start a podcast so I can have more frequent conversations and take those conversations longer and, of course, share them here with you. Now, my guest for this very first episode is none other than 1969 crew chief David Kent. 1969 was a pivotal year for the Blue Angels because they transitioned from the F-11 Tiger to the F-4 Phantom. David's going to share some of his memories from that transitional year, as well as some of the unique personalities on that team, including boss Bill Wheat and pilot Ernie Christensen. After his time on the Blue Angels, David would eventually become a pilot himself and have a surprise interaction with the Blue Angels at 30,000 feet. So if you love the Blue Angels, if you enjoy Blue Angel history, then stick around and please join me in welcoming David Kent to the podcast. David, thanks for joining me on this first Blue Angel Phantoms podcast. You and I originally tried to meet up about two years ago uh, in El Centro to record a video for the Blue Angel Phantoms YouTube channel because of weather and some travel I delays. Remember that, yeah. Yeah, we weren't able to make that happen, but I had the great pleasure of meeting you in 2018 at the Blue Angels Homecoming, uh, which was a real honor for me, and now it's a big honor to have you as one of my very first guests on the Blue Angel Phantoms podcast, so thanks for taking time out of your day to talk to me. Not a problem. I'm just fighting ice and snow in Vermont, and it's good to take a break from that. Great. So, you know, I always like to start these conversations off really understanding how how people get involved in aviation. Is this something that... As a young kid, you knew that aviation was going to become a career, or is it something that eventually just kind of happened over time or uh, as a result of circumstance? I grew up in Vermont, out in the country. I went to a one-room school, eight classes or eight grades in one small room with one teacher where you learned how to get along with people quite well. And the first day of school, I would always... Uh, trot right over there. I only lived a couple hundred yards from the school out in the country. Everybody else was further away. But I would trot right over there and get a seat next to the window so that I could look down at the brook where I would play in the summertime. And I wanted to have the advantage of being able to see the inside bathroom where when the girls needed to go to the bathroom, they would get permission to go through that door. And behind that door was a picture of Lindbergh hanging on the wall. And uh, I was quite enamored with uh, the exploits of Lindbergh and read everything I could get my hands on about him, built a lot of model airplanes. And in 1958, when they closed the one-room school down, I asked the farmer that was boarding it up if I could have that picture of Lindbergh, and he gave it to me, and it hangs in my bathroom to this day. So you developed a passion for aviation at a young age. Uh, How did it eventually become a career i was one of these individuals that like to daydream a lot and as a result uh i had to do my junior year twice i moved away for a year supported myself working in a grocery store grew up a lot and uh, then i went back home and repeated my junior year the second time no that's not correct i did the junior year when i was away for a year then when i came home i did my senior year so after five years of high school i ended up graduating. Then I got accepted at the University of Vermont. I wasn't prepared. It was my fault. And uh, they asked me to take some time off after two semesters because my grades were so poor. So I uh, went to California where my brother lived. Uh, 
and I ran an A&W root beer drive-in stand for a while. I had some experience working in a restaurant back here in high school. So the fellow that owned the A&W root beer drive-in stand, after a couple of weeks, he handed me the keys and said, I want you to run this place. I'm going to go off and have some fun playing golf. So I did that, and I went back to college, but I wasn't carrying enough credit hours, and that was before the, the draft uh, as far as numeric draft there was a, dr a draft and because i didn't carry enough uh, credit hours i was drafted into the army and i decided to go in the navy i joined they sent me to boot camp at great lakes and after that i went to memphis tennessee to aviation structural mechanic hydraulic school and when i finished with that i was sent to naval air facility el centro uh, Coincidentally, that being the winter training headquarters of the Blue Angels, I got to know everybody on the team. And uh, one individual in particular sponsored me by the name of Smokey Ellison, who was the president of the Blue Angel Alumni Association for quite a while. And uh, one day at El Centro, I was uh, asked by the chief to take this big crane down to the hangar where the Blue Angels were taking tail sections off the F-11 Tiger to make some adjustment to the engine and then put the tail sections back on the airplane. So as I was sitting there, uh, a gentleman came along uh, in civilian clothes and said, Sailor, how are you doing? I said, terrible. He said, what's the problem? I said, well, I joined the Navy with expectations of getting on an aircraft carrier or in a uh, squadron and going to Vietnam uh, where everybody else seemed to go. And I was ready for that. But they chose to send me to send me to uh, El Central California, where they had one billet for uh, aviation structural mechanic specialty hydraulics second class, and I'm it. And I've been volunteering for everything in the under the sun, including helicopter attack Da Nang, to try to get myself out of El Centro. I wanted to do something exciting. El Centro was a very slow, lazy uh, place. When I was there, when the Blue Angels weren't there, the place came to a standstill. We swept sand out of the hangars, and by 10 o'clock in the morning, you were on, on liberty for the rest of the day. And uh, I wanted to do something with my life, and I wasn't sure exactly what, but uh, I kept volunteering to leave El Centro, and the Bureau of Personnel kept saying, we can't let you leave because you're the only AMH2. Well, this particular day when I was speaking to the gentleman in civilian clothes, and complaining profusely about being stuck at El Centro for, by the way, I, my orders were duration of duty. I was supposed to be in El Centro for three and a half years. And uh, finally, uh, at the end of the conversation, he said, well, I'm Commander Bill Wheat, skipper of the Blue Angels. And if you write me a letter to Pensacola, I'll see if I can't help get you out of here. <laughs> and sure enough, I wrote the letter and between... Uh, Boss Wheat and Smokey Ellison, uh, I was assigned to go to Pensacola. And I got there, I went. I, I arrived in Pensacola in September of 1968, when they still had the F-11 Tiger. Do you remember actually learning that you had made the Blue Angels? Was it a big deal? How, how does that process work for, for one of the crew learning that they make the Blue Angels? It was a big deal. As you, I'm sure, already know, it's a... Everyone has to volunteer. Um, you do kind of rush the organization just like the pilots do. I 
kind of rush the organization like you would rush a fraternity since they were at El Centro for three months and I was there helping them. I got to know a lot of the team members and, uh, and they sponsored me. So uh, there was an application process where I filled out some paperwork and it was approved by my leading chief that I worked for. And uh, he said, I'd hate to see you leave. You're a good worker here, but I understand if it's an opportunity, you can't pass it up. And so as far as the big deal was concerned, um, I got a postcard in the mail saying I was going to go to the 11th Naval District. And I looked that up and saw that it was uh, Florida. And I put two and two together. Oh, in fact, I think it said on the postcard I was going to the FTD, Flight um, Flight Demonstration, FDT. I think back then it said FDT, Flight Demonstration Team, the Blue Angels. So that's how I learned about it. And it, it was a big deal. And so you joined the team in late 1968. And as you previously mentioned, the Blues were in the F-11 Tiger. But you really signed on for that, that 1969 season when they made the transition to the F-4 Phantom. Can you kind of talk us through that transition between the F-11 Tiger and the F-4 Phantom? Sure. When I arrived in 1968 in September, I didn't know an F-11 from an F-4. I guess I knew F-4s because we used to fuel them at El Centro, but I don't think I had ever seen an F-11. Corpus Christi was flying them in the uh, training squadron, and the Blue Angels had them. Um, I didn't know it at the time, but when I was recruited, it was because uh, Boss Wheat was moving the airplane from F-11, moving the the organization from F-11 to F-4s. Now, the F-4s, much bigger aircraft, two ejection seats instead of one, drag chutes, uh, two engines instead of one. So he was in the process of spooling the aircraft, the uh, the uh, uh, team up to have 100 enlisted as opposed to 50, which they had on the F-11. So unbeknownst to me, when I arrived there, I learned what an F-11 was. I became the plane captain on number three and uh, started hearing right away about how we were going to retire the F-11s we were cannibalizing parts off uh, uh, orange and white F-11s that had been brought up from Corpus Christi when they stopped flying them in the training command. They were parked out on the Marshall matting next to the hangar. And it got to a point where we didn't have even parts to cannibalize. So uh, Boss Wheat knew that we needed to change airplanes and he got approval for the F-4. And so that was the transition for me. Uh, I, I signed up there not knowing what was going on with the Blue Angels, but I learned quite quickly what my role would be. And so do you remember the day that the F-4 Phantoms made their way officially to Pensacola? I understand you guys made a trip up to St. Louis to the McDonnell Douglas factory. Is, is that true? That is correct. Um, as I said, I got there in late in the year, 68 in September, and there were only a few air shows left. Uh, first air show was at Enid and a couple after that. Meridian, Mississippi, and maybe one more. And uh, they loaded myself. And well, let me back up and say to people who may not be familiar, the F-11 Tiger was a single seat aircraft. And now the F-4 Phantom having two seats, a decision was made that they would have someone in the back seat on the cross-country flights. Uh, There's a series of uh, multitude of circuit breakers back there. And in more than one occasion when we were going cross country and uh, a system needed 
help uh, the crew chief was in the back to reset circuit breakers and so forth. Also, the long range navigation system uh, was in the back seat. So once the decision was made to have someone in the back seat, they decided to let the individuals who used to be plane captains would now uh, be assigned the title of crew chief. And the crew chiefs, uh, one was assigned to each airplane. So uh, roundabout answer to your question is they put all the crew chiefs and the pilots in the, uh, in the constellation, the C-121, and uh, flew us to St. Louis. And I can remember, uh, I have pictures, I can remember vividly being in uh, Sandy McDonald's office at uh, McDonnell Douglas in St. Louis, where they signed all the paperwork and took delivery of uh, seven shiny new or refurbished uh, F-4 Phantoms. And uh, at that point in time, uh, the pilots had already had either uh, flown the aircraft in Vietnam or uh, and or had been to a, uh, a training facility between shows. And uh, we flew the airplanes back to Pensacola. And that was in uh, late November, early December in preparation for uh, going to El Centro for the first training session with F-4 Phantoms. And how did the composition of the tr- the crew really change from that F-11 Tiger year to then going to the F-4 Phantoms? Did you guys have to add more personnel or personnel that had specific expertise that could work with the F-4 Phantom? Yes, that's correct. It was a bit of a struggle, as has been written by Boss Wheat and some others, uh, there was a lot of expertise of F-11 maintenance. Uh, the, the individuals that were there, some very close friends of mine, uh, had been on the F-11 Tiger in the fleet and at uh, the team, uh, and they knew that airplane inside and out. Um, but when it was decided to get the F-4 Phantom, they started bringing personnel in that were F-4 qualified. So for a period of time there, late 68, we had a combination of F-11 people that knew exactly what to do with that aircraft and F-4 people that were temporarily kind of learn that airplane. And then when the transition was made over, F-11 people would move back to the fleet and more F-4 people would come in. So it took a, a period of time before we were fully staffed with uh, people that really knew the F-4. And we didn't we didn't uh, get rid of, if you let me use that term, we did, the team did not get rid of all F-11 personnel. While I was there uh, in 69 on the F-4, there were a lot of individuals who had been uh, there with the F-11, but their tour with the Blues was not up yet. So they learned the F-4. And uh, we, in you know, I, I feel like we did a remarkable job uh, transitioning and getting that airplane uh, to do the shows. We had a lot of obstacles to overcome. We worked day and night. It was it was quite labor intensive. Yeah. So you were only in Pensacola for a short period of time before going right back to El Centro for winter training. That's correct. Yeah. I uh, <laughs> I uh, drove my car from uh, uh, Pens- uh, from El Centro to Pensacola and uh, I was there just for a couple of months and took a little leave and then back to Pensacola, picked up the F-4s, and we were on our way back to El Centro. And I flew in the back seat of number three, and I had a couple of my friends that were not crew chiefs fly uh, drive my car back out to El Centro so we would have a car out there. So was that your first time actually flying in an F-4 Phantom? Was that flight back to El Centro? Um, no, I 
flew back from uh, from St. Louis to Pensacola in the airplane, and then uh, then we flew to uh, El Centro. Uh, what was your first flight in the Phantom like? Was that uh, had you been in a high performance jet like that before? I had never been in a high performance jet. The only airplanes I had ever been in were a small helicopter as a kid. Um, I had been in a light twin to get to Boston, and I'd flown in a 727 to get to California and a Fairchild 27 to get down to El Centro. That was about the extent of it. So uh, being in the backseat of an F-4 Phantom was quite an experience. Uh, my recollection is that the tra- the uh, cross-country flight from, uh, El- from Pensacola to El Centro was uh, pretty docile, I think. I don't remember being inverted or, or it was kind of a widespread diamond or, or six-plane formation. I, I don't think uh, we did anything uh, that would have caused an upset stomach. However, uh, once we got to uh, El Centro, uh, I rode in the back seat on some of the very first training flights and learned very quickly how to avoid uh, motion sickness. Uh, back that at that time, they they hadn't really uh, developed or taught the crew chiefs the maneuver that you see on videos nowadays about the hick maneuver, where you learn to tighten the abdominal abdominal muscles and keep the blood from flowing out of your head to keep from blacking out. We learned how to do it, but we learned it the hard way. Do you, were you nervous or scared to go up in an F-4 Phantom and do high-performance maneuvers that the Blue Angels are so accustomed to doing? Or was it just part of the job and, and you just did it and didn't think about it? Well, it was part of the job. And when you're only 22 years old, you're not afraid of anything. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would think that would scare the hell out of me. But uh, <laughs> any, Anyway, so that's pretty amazing. You got to go fly with the Blue Angels, really understand their demo from a back seat. And, you know, to my knowledge, I don't think the Blues have ever flown another aircraft that was a two-seater for all the aircraft in the demo. So that's a pretty unique experience. That's correct. Uh, so besides getting to fly in the demo, which is pretty darn special, can you talk me through what that first winter training was like? It was very labor-intensive. Um when I was not in the aircraft, uh, I, I had an opportunity to fly all the or the majority of the cross country flights from show site to show site. And, and my, I don't remember exactly now, but the number 100 is in my brain that we did about 100 shows or something short of that. It was twice as many as they had done in previous years. And uh, uh, I got sick in the airplane in El Centro. I didn't fly in the back seat in El Centro on all the training flights. I had other things to do as a hydraulic specialist on the ground. We all worked together on all the airplanes. You know, if you were an engine mechanic or a hydraulic specialist, it didn't matter. You all pulled on the end of the same end of the rope. Uh, I can remember being out there all night doing engine changes and so forth, even though I wasn't an engine specialist. Um, so, when we did the cross-country flights, I was in the back seat, and uh, uh, we would go upside down in the cross-country flight just to avoid boredom a little bit. And uh, But the heavy G maneuvers, uh, that was during winter training, and uh, I got to ride through some of the arrival shows. Typically, we would show up on a Friday at a show site, and if they had enough fuel on board, uh, if it was close to Pensacola or if we'd made a fuel stop and we had enough fuel on board, 
there would be an arrival show on Friday, and I got to go through that. And uh, then on Saturday and Sunday, uh, typically there was nobody in the back seat other than perhaps a uh, a pilot that was uh, rushing the team to uh, be on the team or some other VIP might be in the back seat. So you get to a show site. Can you talk me through the responsibility of a crew chief through the weekend? You've mentioned, obviously, if there's a problem, the whole team joins together regardless of their specialty. But as a crew chief, what, what are your core responsibilities throughout an air show weekend? Okay, well, that's a great question. Um, the aircraft are quite clean. As everybody knows, you could eat out of the wheel wells. Uh, so that was uh, not the primary responsibility. The primary responsibility was to make sure that the aircraft was uh, 100% operationally uh, ready for flight. And even though I was not an avionics technician, I was not an engine mechanic. Uh, after the pilot would fly the aircraft, he would write up whatever squawks he had. And then it was the crew chief's responsibility to coordinate with that particular shop and make sure that the work got accomplished so that when you did the walk around the aircraft and uh, you saluted, uh, you essentially were uh, telling the, the your pilot that you are the one that has made sure that that aircraft is 100% ready for him to go fly and any, any discrepancies have been fixed and have a great flight. Why don't we transition and actually talk about the F-4 Phantom itself? In a lot of the pictures you see of the F-4 Phantom, there's four, I guess, Sparrow missiles, you call them, on the bottom of the fuselage. What were the, what was the purpose of those missiles? Did they have a particular functionality, or was it more aesthetics? Um, combination of aesthetics, because that's what those uh, cavities on the belly are for, Uh two forward sparrows, two aft sparrows. Uh, two of ours were painted blue. I believe those, well, I might be wrong now. I'm, it's been a number of years, but I think it was the forward ones that were blue and the back ones were yellow. And uh, that system had been modified plumbing-wise. Typically, uh, a missile wouldn't have plumbing to it, but these did in order that the missile could be serviced with jet fuel a mixture of jet fuel and dye, uh, a rather concentrated mixture. And then the missile was pressurized with air pressure uh, from air system inside the airplane. And that pressurized uh, concentrated blue or red dye uh, went to the wing dump system, which is uh, located where normally the wingtip would fold if you were on a carrier for parking. And that dump mast, if you will, had a mixing valve there. So where normally it would just open up and allow wing fuel to dump out to the atmosphere, uh, when the pilot selected the water to be turned on, as it was called, um, he would flip a switch and the mix valve would open up and the dump valve would open up and the concentrated mixture, in this case, let's say on the left side of the, uh, I believe that was the red, the red dye would uh, mix with the uh, fuel from the tank, and you had the red-colored water or jet fuel spraying into the atmosphere, and on the opposite side was the, uh, the blue. Now, the aft missiles, uh, they were filled with 1010 engine oil, 
pressurize. And when the boss called smoke on, uh, that pressurized fluid would be routed to a, a, a mass that hung down behind the burner on the number two engine, the right-hand engine. And when that uh, 1010 engine oil, it's very thin, uh, was released into the hot gases coming off the right-hand engine, it, that vaporizes and turns into smoke. So you had the red, white, and blue effect, which the, the Blue Angels were famous for, uh, uh, red, white, and blue, uh, mom's apple pie in America. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I, I don't know exactly what the year was, but I'm going to make a guess it was around 72, could have been 71. Um, the team inadvertently uh, uh, deposited that, that fuel and dye at low altitude over a car lot in uh, California. And unfortunately, it ruined the paint on uh, several new vehicles. So uh, that was the end of uh, using uh, the dye system. <laughs> yes. And I, I think there were a couple other incidents, too, including a, a, a golfer on the Pensacola uh, golf course. <laughs> I, I hadn't heard about that one. I, I, have a, I have a side story about smoke that I'd like to, like to share. Yeah, fire away. Uh, you're probably going to get to uh, what I did later on after the blues, but... Uh, after I became a pilot uh, and I was flying for United Airlines, I was uh, uh, flying a 767 as a captain from Los Angeles to uh, Miami, I think it was, someplace in Florida. And I was over Arkansas, and I heard air traffic control say, uh, Angel 1, uh, no, said uh, American such-and-such -such flight, uh, in about five minutes, uh, off to your right, you're going to see the Blue Angels, a flight of six aircraft. And the American pilot said, okay, we'll be watching for the Blue Angels. So I got on the radio and talked to the center controller, and I said, uh, this is United such and such a flight number. I said, uh, how about us? We're in the area here. Are we going to see the team, the Blues? He said, yeah, you're right behind Americans, so you'll see them passing right to left in about seven minutes. I said, okay, I uh, wonder if you could get the boss to come up, uh, Angel 1 to come up on uh, 12345. Well, in in aviation circles, 12345 is 123.45 megahertz, and it's kind of the conversational frequency. It's not used for anything else. And so uh, I tuned that up, and I listened, and uh, the voice came on and said, uh, this is Angel 1, go ahead. And I said, yeah, boss, this is David Kent, and I was on the team, blah, 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 and I'm over here as a captain now flying this 767, and I just wanted, it was the beginning of the season, I said, I just wanted to wish you a, a good show season. He said, well, thanks very much, good to talk with you. It was real short, because he's got his work to do to keep six airplanes all together out there. So uh, we said goodbye, and uh, I watched, and they came, and they got out at about my one o'clock position and he turned the smoke on that is awesome do you remember which boss it was what were they in the uh the hornets at the time they were in the hornets and the letter is upstairs and it was in the 90s and i i'm ashamed to admit i i cannot remember exactly which boss it was i'm gonna have to go upstairs and look at that but that was one of the highlights of my flying career was to uh, have the boss smoke me from right to left. <laughs> yeah, that that is a once in a lifetime experience. It that was. Is it really. And unfortunately, cool. it was uh, before cell phones. 
I did not have a camera, and I, I dearly wish I had gotten that on film. <laughs> I bet. I, that, well, I would have loved to have seen that picture. Uh, going back to your, your days on the Blue Angels, so you were a crew chief on the number three aircraft, which was flown by none other than Ernie Christensen. And I guess for the listeners to give context to Ernie, who Ernie Christensen is, he was uh, a, uh, an incredible naval aviator, uh, starting with three years on the Blue Angels, but also a combat veteran of Vietnam and the Gulf War. And at one point in his career, he was the CEO of Top Gun. So uh, a pretty special individual. And you were his crew chief in 1969. What was it like to be Ernie Christensen's crew chief? Do you have any good Ernie Christensen stories? Well, um, Ernie was uh, attention to detail. Ernie liked to have a good time when they weren't flying like all of us did. But it was all business when we were flying the airplane. And uh, flying cross-country with him was a great experience. Uh, We'd have conversations about flying a little bit. And I told him I had an interest in it. And he gave me a few things, a few pointers about how it was that they were navigating and use of the long range navigation system. So a very personable individual. Uh, We developed a good friendship. I'm in contact with him to this day on a fairly regular basis. And, uh, you know, he went on to become an admiral and uh, he uh, skippered the uh, Ranger, as I recall, uh, the aircraft carrier, the Ranger. So uh, he comes from a long line of, uh, of, uh, naval personnel. His grandfather was uh, one of the pilots on one of those uh, ocean-going airplanes that you see in the Naval uh, Air Museum there at Pensacola. Uh, I can't remember what the designation of that aircraft is, but it was one of the very first uh, aircraft that the Navy had that was long-range, could land on the ocean, it was a biplane. And so uh, he had quite an aviation background went to the Naval Academy, and uh, I was very privileged, very privileged to fly with, with Ernie. And for anyone uh, wanting to see Ernie in action at the Blue Angels, there's a great movie called Threshold, The Blue Angels Experience. Uh, features the 1970 and 1971 team, so just after David Kent's time on the team. But uh, Ernie is a big part of that film, and it is, my opinion, one of the best documentaries ever produced about the Blue Angels. But moving on... Um, you also, you've talked about Boss Wheat uh, quite a bit. What Can you tell us more about Boss Wheat? I actually just had the privilege of meeting Boss Wheat at homecoming. He was in the lobby of the hotel that I was staying at, and uh, I introduced myself, and he couldn't have been any nicer of a guy. But what was it like to work under Bill Wheat? Well, I didn't have direct contact with Boss Wheat. Um, my close friend, who happened to have been the best man at my wedding in later years by the name of Bill Maxey, he was Boss Wheat's plane, cap, or plane captain on the F-11 and crew chief on the F-4. So while on the team, I did not have a lot of contact with Boss Wheat. But I will say you're absolutely spot on when you talk about him being a, certainly a real gentleman. Uh, I did have occasion last year at our Blue Angel Alumni Association reunion to uh, I, I, I had spoken with him by email a couple of times and I I, uh, I called him up and I said, uh, on Friday night, uh, we're all getting together at this restaurant in Pensacola, the, the boys of 1969 and uh, 68, and it would be really special if you could drop by and say hi. Well, unknown to me, it was the same night that he had a, uh, a commitment uh, with other officers, but he took time out of that meeting 
to come to the restaurant and he spent about 45 minutes with us. He bought us all a round of drinks. And uh, when you when you talk to Boss Week, he's a real gentle, methodical, kind soul. And it, it, that was a real highlight to have him come visit with us. And um, we had we had lots of praise for him. We thought he did a wonderful job on ushering the F4 uh, into use by the team. Going back to your time flying in the back of an F4, there was an air show in British Columbia in 1969. <laughs> <laughs> You care sharing your your side of the story about that? Well, I was in the back seat of number three that day, and uh, we staged out of a uh, Canadian Air Force base because uh, Kelowna, British Columbia, is a small, sleepy town at that time, at the south end of Lake Okanagan, which is a fifty-mile-long lake. Uh, one of the most beautiful spots I've ever been in my life. And uh, it was so special there. I said, I'm coming back here someday. More about that later. But uh, that particular day, um, we were doing what was was called back then the vertical opener. The diamond would come in uh, at low altitude, maybe 100 or 200 feet above the water. There was a white boat, small boat out in the harbor. Uh, the Kelowna Harbor, and we come, came in at low altitude, and the vertical opener was to pull up into a loop and go over the top at 10,000 feet, and as you came on the backside of the loop heading straight down at 7,000 feet, you'd hear the boss say, ready, break, and he would pull, pull out straight ahead. Uh, number two, uh, Vince Dinelli, the Marine Corps pilot, would do a half roll to the right, and pull out to the east, as it was, I recall. And uh, Lieutenant Christensen would uh, do a half left and pull out to the west. And uh, Rick Milson was in number four, and he did a 180-degree turn and pulled out uh, back to the south. So the idea was uh, the pilots would, would go out a certain distance. I asked Ernie Christensen one time, I said, Ernie, how did, how did you know how far to go out? Uh, was it a timing on a stopwatch or something? He said, no, you're, you're at 7,000 feet. You're pulling a certain number of Gs to get down to uh, 500 feet above the ground. And at that time, you make the maneuver to pull, a, pull up and come back around. So it, it was all uh, timing relative to G loading and, uh, and flying the airplane at certain altitudes. And the objective then was to stack up the four airplanes, as is done to this day, over the center point. Now, they always, uh, at air show sites, quite often, the, the crowd line is positioned such that it looks like it's going to be a head-on collision of four aircraft. you got somebody coming from the left, somebody coming from the right. But for the listeners that aren't familiar with how that's done, they have radar altimeters on the airplane, so they can fly at 100 or 200 feet above the water or above the ground quite accurately. And if it was at a, an airport, one would be on one edge of the runway, one would be on the other edge of the runway, that runways being 100 feet wide. It's still very, very close for comfort, but there is an alignment process where they're staggered offset from each other and two airplanes at a certain altitude. And then the other two airplanes coming from the 90 degree positions are at a different radar altitude, uh, say 100 foot higher. Well, this particular day, I looked to the left and I saw a boss wheat coming towards the center point. 
I looked to the right and I saw Rick Milson and his crew chief coming in toward the center point. And I know we were headed to the center point and looking straight ahead, way off in the distance where I should have been able to see the number two aircraft with Captain Dinelli and his crew chief in it. Uh, I could see them, but they were a speck compared to the rest of us. And about that time, I heard Boss Wheat say, Vince, where the heck are you? We're almost there or something to that effect. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, well, what had happened was um, he uh, he went into full military burner to try to catch up. Uh, he also says that he ran into a cold air pocket, which would have uh, increased the mock number. But uh, through all those circumstances, uh, he broke the sound barrier. And unfortunately, he did break some uh, plate glass in the uh, shop windows in downtown Kelowna. Now, we had been invited to come from the uh, Canadian Air Force Base after we put the airplanes to bed and did the maintenance. We had been invited back into Kelowna to go to the Chamber of Commerce. They were putting on a, a cocktail party for the pilots and the crew chiefs. And when we came in, it was rather interesting in that the uh, shop owners there in Kelowna had uh, boarded up the windows with plywood and they had painted on them pictures of Snoopy and the Red Baron, Yankee go home. So it was a, an unfortunate accident uh, that happened or an incident, I should say. But uh, uh, we all laughed about it after time. Things do happen. Uh, there wasn't any loss of life and uh, cold air pockets do occur once in a while. And you returned back to Kelowna in your travels down the road. Is that true? I did. Um, it, it was such a beautiful place. Uh, when I was uh, flying at United Airlines, uh, another captain that I knew said to me one day, he said, have you ever ridden the train from Banff uh, to Vancouver? And he said, it's a fantastic trip. You ought to take your wife and do that. So we made arrangements, we did the trip, and and then the next day we drove the 50 miles down to Kelowna. Uh, I was sitting on a park bench while my wife was shopping and an older old timer there like I am now uh, asked if I'd been there before. And I said, yeah, I was, <laughs> I was here in 1969 with the Blue Angels. And he said, you're one of those guys? He was there, he remembered the broken glass and so forth, but we laughed about it. That's outstanding, great story. Um, you know, you were only on the team for one year, um, and that was also Bill Wheat's last year on the team. Did you have any interaction with the incoming boss, who was Harley Hall? I did not. I actually left before Harley Hall got there. I've heard a lot of good things from uh, my teammates who were there longer than I was. Uh, my uh, departing from the team came about in September of 69, one, only one year after I'd been there. I was scheduled to uh, finished my one enlistment in February of 1970. But in September, I was called to the personnel office by uh, Mary Russell, the uh, personnel officer. Uh, and she asked Petty Officer Ken, do you intend to re-enlist? And I said, no, ma'am, I'm uh, planning on going back to school. I wasn't exactly sure what I was going to do at that point in time, but I knew I wanted to go back to school and probably something in aviation. And uh, she said, well, the Navy is uh, prepared to offer you a six-month early out. Uh, things are kind of winding down over in Vietnam, and we're cutting back on personnel. Does that interest you? 
Well, I had been talking to uh, Bill Pritchett, who was the McDonnell Douglas tech rep, and uh, he we had become quite good friends. And Bill said to me one day prior to that, he said, you have such an affection for airplanes. What are you going to do uh, after your enlistment's up? And I told him, I'm not sure. And he said, well, I have a strong suggestion that you go to an aviation school like he did. Uh, Parks Air College in St. Louis, uh, he went there, and then he went to uh, Spartan School of Aeronautics out in Tulsa. So um, I took his advice, I investigated into it, and uh, I left in September early, six months early, and then in the spring I went to Tulsa, the Spartan School of Aeronautics. I got a uh, AMP mechanics license, a uh, radio telephone repairman's license, then I took over a small flying club uh, 18 airplane shop and did that for a year and a half, almost two years, and uh, used the GI Bill to take flying lessons. And then I got into general aviation, corporate aviation, uh, flew for three different companies. The last one had Learjets and a Boeing 727 to fly international. They were a oil and gas exploration company. And after eight years with them, I got picked. I was picked up by uh, United Airlines, and then I flew the Big Iron, as they say, for uh, 20 years there. I hope that encapsulates the uh, the answer to your question. Yeah, absolutely. So you were a 747 captain. That is pretty remarkable. Well, uh, it was the best job in the world. When I turned 60, that was the re- mandatory retirement age. They changed it a year later to 65. I dearly would have loved to stay another five years. I'm one of the people that was a love to fly and I left screaming and kicking. I didn't want to leave, but uh, I didn't let grass grow under my feet. I found another flying job with a charter company in Burlington, Vermont, and uh, they were in business for six years. So I got to fly citation charter all over the country for six more years. So today you still hold an official role with the Blue Angels Alumni Association, is that correct? Well, I was a director, but uh, my term expired on that, so I am now uh, the email coordinator for the Blue Angel Alumni Association, and in addition to that, um, an admin for the Blue Angel Alumni private Facebook group. Uh, And what exactly is the goal of the Alumni Association, just to keep everyone coordinated and up to events on what's going on with the alumni, or is there more of a, an official support role for the existing team as it stands today? The uh, Blue Angel Alumni Association was formed by a gentleman by the name of Larry Cruzen with the express purpose of continuing the camaraderie that we all enjoyed uh, while we were at the team. Uh, you become working that close to each other and, uh, being on the road with each other, uh, you you develop some very, very close relationships. And that's still the way it is today on the Alumni Association uh, private group. Uh, The the conversations that go on, uh, you you can tell right away how close all these people were to each other and how they they all had each other's back. And uh, and, uh, you don't don't end that just, you don't end that uh, camaraderie just because your time is up and you leave the team. It continues um, on in for the rest of your on for the rest of your life. Now, one of the uh, good things that has happened is the advent of Facebook, the internet, cell phones. The list goes on. It has 
allowed us to have uh, that close camaraderie on a continuing basis, which really didn't didn't exist prior to the advent of that elect those electronics and the alumni association. We have a reunion every two years in Pensacola. There's usually a hundred people there, and uh, I think we have uh, oh I forget how many. Uh, probably 1,500, 2,000 people in the Alumni Association now. And so when you go back to Pensacola uh, every other year, how much pride do you have in seeing the existing team uh, and crew? And, and do you take time to go back and engage with with the existing crew that is on the team today? Uh, we do. I engage with them uh, on a regular basis just through uh, Facebook and make our alumni association available to them and the Facebook group available to them when they leave the team as alumni. But at the show site, uh, that last show homecoming weekend in uh, November in Pensacola, when we have our reunions, uh, not only do we have a great time seeing our buddies that we worked with from our particular years on the team, but we make it a point to intermingle with uh, uh, the current team as much as possible uh, both at the uh, Pensacola Air Station between the uh, when they, when they're not uh, doing the show before they uh, actually have the walk down and do the show, we get to visit the spaces there and see where we used to work and uh, talk to the individuals that are in the shop that we used to be in, like the crew chief shop, and uh, they really appreciate uh, uh, getting to meet us and uh, getting the insight. Uh, as uh, what it was like for us when we were flying the earlier aircraft and so forth. And, and we really uh, are anxious to get any information we can as to uh, what it's like on the team now. Things do change over the years. Uh, and so we live our uh, childhood in our, uh, in our uh, waning years by visiting Pensacola for the air shows at the end of the year. You bring up an interesting point about how things have changed over the years. Do you see any significant changes from your time on the team to today as far as maybe standard operating procedures or just team composition? I mean, obviously, the aircraft have changed over time, and that's probably caused some changes in the demonstration. But is there anything significant that sticks out in your mind when you go back and visit that wasn't there when you, know, when you were on the team? Well, uh, there's a strict adherence to standards. We know about that, and that always existed. Um, I think probably the uh, individuals now are, uh, there's more emphasis on uh, uh, staying physically fit. Uh, probably the eating habits, uh, uh, it's, it's a younger generation, and not just from being on the blues, but uh, like my my children, uh, uh, younger generation, the millennials, if you will, uh, they have a pretty good handle on uh, how they should eat and uh, how much they should drink. And uh, I, th I think they uh, uh, they may be a little better um, in control of everything that's going on in their lives uh, on the team nowadays. Of course, one thing that is different is, uh, from what I understand, um, I know that uh, when I was on the team, it seemed like the vast majority of individuals were single. And uh, then there was a move over the years to change that to where the majority of people are already married. So not everybody is, but there are a lot more married people uh, 
on the on the team and uh, you know they instead of going out with the guys uh, they tend to the home fires at home and have responsibilities with their family as well so uh, I am really really admire the individuals that I've met that are on the team they are really grounded they've got their head on their shoulders uh, many of them have uh, left the team and gone on to have flying careers many of the enlisted individuals on the team uh, when they left the team, uh, they made a career out of it, and uh, it seems like more people are making careers of it now. And that's the that's the age bracket of people that join the team, married individuals, and making it a career in the Navy. And they leave the team, and uh, they go on to being becoming officers. and And it's quite an impressive uh, group of young people. That's that's the best thing I can say. You have given us a great snapshot into 1969 and your, as well as just your career in the Blue Angels and your career overall. Before we sign off here, is there is there anything else I'm missing or anything else you want to share with us that uh, would be of interest to this audience? I guess the all, first thing that comes to mind that uh, reflects back on uh, my life and getting involved with aviation would be uh, if there's young people out there that happen to listen to this podcast and they're at a crossroads and uh, they don't know if they really want to go to college or uh, they haven't been very good scholars. Um, if they don't have the means, financial means to go to college, um, the other branches included, but for me, the Navy and the GI Bill was, uh, was my ticket to a, what I consider to be a successful career. So uh, if there's anybody that's at a crossroads and not exactly sure what to do, they really ought to consider the military and uh, what the military can do for them. They don't have to stay there for 20 or 30 years, but like myself, if they were there for just one enlistment, maybe it's a, like for me, it was a maturity thing. Maybe it's maturity. Uh, and then when they get out, they've got the GI Bill and uh, it can uh, it can provide a future is what is what I'm saying. Yeah, and that is great advice. Thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing your stories about your time in the Blue Angels and your career and providing that great advice and, and for being my first guest on this podcast series. It's absolutely been a pleasure of mine to uh, take part, and uh, I look forward to chatting with you more in the future, and I hope I, next time at uh, an air show site I get to see you again. You bet. I'll be. Uh, my goal is to make it to Pensacola every year going forward, as long as I can make it happen. Especially for that transition to the Super Hornet, I'm looking forward to it. You're doing a great job carrying on the tradition of your grandfather. Thank you. I mean, that is uh, very kind of you to say, and you guys make it real easy. Uh, you're all very good role models for me, and and I was lucky enough to grow up with him, and and obviously be introduced to such a great community uh, in you guys, the Blue Angels. So thank you. My pleasure. One more thing. Yes, sir. Uh, Happy New Year to you. <laughs> Same to you, sir. Thank you so much. Have a good much. night. You bye bet. Bye. Take care. All right. Thank you so much for checking out this very first episode of the Blue Angel Phantoms podcast. Now, David sent me an email after this interview concluded and let me know that that boss of the Blue Angels that he interacted with at 30,000 feet was actually Russ Bartlett, the boss of the Blue Angels in 2003 and 2004, and who was also featured on the documentary Blue Angels A Year in the Life. Now, if you enjoy these types of interviews, please check out my YouTube channel, Blue Angel Phantoms, or my website, blueangelphantoms.com. So until next time, thank you so much for tuning in.